0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. He laid it out, canceled dinner with his mom because he had a ton of errands. He got down there and said, tonight's the night. I don't know if you picked up on it when Brandon Sweeney was on the stand, but when defense counsel said, when was the last time you saw Faria? He said, not since the night. Not that night. That night we played. That night we watched Conan the Barbarian. That night we celebrated Christmas. The night. The night we've been talking about for months. For years. The night. It's here. Tonight is the night. Prosecutor Leah Askey from Bone Deep by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Schwartz. Closer love in mine God up love and be my little clinging by like to feel your cheeks so rosy like to make you comfy cozy cause I love. Them. Hey. Welcome back, Murder Bookies, to episode 42, The Bell Cannot Be Unrung, on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Betsy Faria murder case by Charles Bosworth, Jr. and Joel Schwartz. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. Each month, I will discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf, no boring timeline here, as I present the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I usually cast the story in a new light, examining the path not taken, adding the latest updates. But not today. This is the third episode, but it is not Second Cast. The Bone Deep series is actually a tetralogy a new word to me, meaning I've never done a four-parter before. There was just too much that I couldn't cut out, so we're going off the rails and breaking the mold. Look for that different path Second Cast is known for in two weeks. Read the book. I know, I know. I always say that, but it is really true. Now, murder bookies, please listen to parts one and two before listening to this episode. You may be confused if you don't. These are episodes 40 and 41. In these, we previously saw Russ Faria, charged with the premeditated murder of his wife, Betsy Faria, on December twenty-seventh, 2011, a myopic prosecutor driven by a police department with tunnel vision and confirmation bias woes, and a term I just learned at CrimeCon 22, noble cause corruption when investigators blind themselves to their own bad behavior, perceiving it as legitimate in the false belief that they are pursuing an important public trust, such as a murder investigation. All right, this case is the poster child for this psychological phenomenon. It was also true for the John Binet Ramsey case in our last series. Okay, a friend of Betsy's, Pam Hupp, is on a mission to malign Russ, testifying about the shaky Faria marriage Russ's verbal abuse of terminally ill cancer patient Betsy and Pam's solid finances and security. During the trial, the state benefited greatly from Judge Christina Menemeyer's unlawful, ignorant rulings that hampered the defense by severely limiting what the jury could hear. Now, we've been collecting puzzle pieces, five so far. So at the end of this, we can see the complete picture of what influenced this first trial's outcome. So keep listening for Puzzle Pieces. When the state rested its case, defense attorney Joel Schwartz made a motion for the judge to acquit Russ Faria, as the state had only proved Russ was miles away from home from 5 to 9 p.m. when Betsy was killed, with Judge Menemeyer denying it. Launching the defense, Schwartz called EMT Captain Robert Charmec, who testified that Betsy was cold when he checked for her pulse. Which cannot be explained by the cadaveric spasm theory, Sharmick tried to move Betsy's wrist, but instead the whole arm moved, indicating she was stiff. Quote, she had been there for some time, and rigor mortis had started to set in. Sharmick also said the blood was cold and had been there for some time, and that in his professional opinion, Betsy had been dead for a few hours. The defense hoped the jury deduced her death came around 7.30 p.m. when Morris was absolutely at Mike Corbin's watching movies. The alibi presentation began. Buddy Mike Corbin was called next, explaining the game role Masters for the Jury, a role-playing fantasy adventure where players take on characters and roll the dice to move around the board. It's not a costume party, so no one is dressed up. Other than bathroom breaks, Mike was 100% certain that they, quote, all sat within eight feet of each other all night, end quote. Assistant Prosecutor Richard Hicks tried to paint the game in a darker light, casting Mike's role as a referee who had to think on his feet during the dark, violent missions the group went on during the game. Mike described Russ's character, Guy, as a peaceful monk. Hadn't Mike said in his deposition that Russ's monk knew martial arts? Mike said, quote, he had those skills, but he didn't use any weapons. Typically, tried to defuse situations, end quote. At one point, Mike Corbin also corrected Hicks, quote, actually, you had asked me about missions that involved kidnapping. And I stated, no, we don't have any kind of ill will in any of the games. Typically, I run a heroic type game. Where these are the good guys trying to defeat the bad guys. End quote. When asked about watching Conan the Barbarian, Mike said, quote, watching a movie is a much more passive type of activity. End quote. All right. So clearly these are mass murderers plotting evil and mayhem in the real world. I mean, utterly frigging ridiculous. Marshall Bach was next with Hicks attacking the concept of the game. Asked if Rollmaster was violent. Brandon responded, quote, Sometimes, every once in a while, there would be a horde of orcs that you'd have to go and kill off because they were going to raid a town, end quote. Fun fact orcs are not real and have never actually killed anybody. (laughs) Seriously. Oh my God. Bach wasn't sure if he and Brandon Sweeney arrived right before or right after Russ, because it was all within a matter of minutes. Marshall also confirmed that he and roommate Brandon left just after Russ at 9.03 p.m. They followed Russ's car until they got to the turn for their house. Brandon dropped Marshall off, and then he went to Jack in the Box to get something to eat. The Arby's that Russ went to was right across the street from the Jack in the Box. Marshall still had the receipt for his purchase, time stamped at 9.13 p.m. When he was initially interviewed, a cop had told Marshall to keep the receipt, and now Marshall literally pulled it out of his pocket and handed it into to Schwartz, who entered it into evidence in the middle of testifying. Angela Julian was the final game night player to testify, with everything in agreement with the previous testimony. They got there around 6 p.m., they were all there that night, including Russ, no one left, and the night broke up at 9 p.m. Now, if that isn't a great alibi, I cannot fathom what is. It is just where the evidence leads me—not emotion, not tunnel vision. After a final attempt to get the judge to reverse herself on barring testimony that could establish a motive for Pam Hub, Aunt Linda Hartman came to the stand. Russ is a relative of Linda's husband's, while Linda and Betsy had bonded after Linda had breast cancer. Speaking without the jury present in December, in a week just before the murder. Monday through Thursday, Linda and Betsy had gone off on a girls' trip, ending because Betsy had an appointment with Pam Hupp, one that she was reluctant to go to, on Friday, December 23rd. During this trip, Betsy also said that she was okay with passing on because she was leaving insurance for Russ and the girls, which would be split in threes. The judge eventually ruled in the negative, and the jury never heard this, which is another puzzle piece. Called to the stand by Schwartz, Detective Dean Fry of the Major Case Squad investigated Russ's alibi, collecting video from each stop Russ had made. Schwartz played a video montage of Russ's trip to Mike's, with Fry agreeing Russ had been to each place exactly as he said, wearing the same clothing. When asked about Brandon Sweeney's Jack in the Box receipt, Fry denied telling him to save it. Yeah, Brandon is just so familiar with police procedures and investigation and trials and evidence that he made that up and saved the receipt all on his own. I do not believe Fry on this point. It just doesn't ring true. Joel Schwartz's private investigator, Kurt Ponzer, testified that he bought food at Arby's, then drove to Russ Feria's house several times, each trip taking 28 minutes and 32 seconds. The conclusion was, that Russ could not have gotten home before 9.35 p.m., scant minutes before he called 911 at 9.40 p.m. The video produced by Ponzer, beginning at Arby's at 9.09, matched Russ's receipt and was shown to the jury. In this timeline, there is just no time for this vicious murder. Greg Chatton, a forensic computer analyst certified by the courts in Missouri, testified that he had completed the cellular mapping of Russ's cell phone using information from T-Mobile. The data supported Russ's presence at all the stops he made all along the route to Mike Corbin's. At 7.50 p.m., Russ's phone pinged at Mike Corbin's house. At 9.25 p.m., Russ was at least 10 miles from home. At 9.37, the cell phone ping was back in the sector of Russ's house. When Greg Chatton asked where Pam Hupp's cell phone activity indicated she was at 7.27 p.m., objection rang out. The judge said Schwartz could present this, but outside the hearing of the jury. Puzzle piece. Jury out? The judge listened to Schwartz's argument for presenting Pam's cell phone information. Chatton explained his analysis that showed Pam Hupp's cell phone was still in the same sector as Betsy's house when she made her calls at seven hundred four and at seven twenty seven PM. The critical seven twenty seven call could not have been made when she was south of Troy or at her house as she had testified under oath. And the judge decided No, no, the jury could not hear this testimony. Jury back Hicks's cross went to the paid witness territory. Yes, Chatton had been paid to do work and testify. Did Chatton work mostly for the defense? Well, yes, he did, because police had crime scene technicians to do this for them. Had Chatton refused to discuss his testimony with prosecutor Askey? Yes, because she was getting into defense trial strategy. On redirect, Schwartz asked if his lab work and testimony were impacted by his working for the defense. Quote, not at all. I'm a fact finder, whether I do cell mapping or forensics, data is data. End quote. Alibi solidly established, closing arguments would begin, which would establish a new low in judicial history. All right, prepare yourselves. Prosecutor Leia Asky launched into her belief on how this crime happened. They decided this would be the ultimate role play. Prior to December 27th, possibly for months or years, Russ had this idea, talking about it to his gaming friends. How would we all do this? Russ needed all hands on deck and a plan that would be easily committed to memory. Leah Askey had now accused all of Russ's game night friends of being co-conspirators in a murder plot, which would open all of them up to charges as well. Shock registered in Russ's eyes, Nate Swanson's, and Joel Swartz, all mouths dropping. Leah said that Betsy had learned of her fatal cancer prognosis just as her marriage was deteriorating. Would she spend the rest of her life with this man? or take care of her kids as a mom does. Russ knew she had 300000 in life insurance, and he realized his wife was going to be in Troy that night. A caring, doting husband would have stayed home with her as she wasn't feeling well after chemo, but not Russ. He made sure game was happening that night, glad a friend was driving Betsy home. And so the ball starts rolling, the momentum starts gaining, he makes all these stops so he can establish an alibi. He cancels dinner with his mom. He gets to the game and it's the night. He leaves his cell phone at my Corbin's and heads back to Troy. He comes in the house, Betsy on the sofa, and I submit to you that he had sex with her, that he violates her one more time. I'm going to humiliate you in a way that only I can. One more time, knowing she's tired, that she's sick. End quote. Oh my God. ASCII is utterly contradicting Farenstock's testimony. Ferenstock was the forensics guy that Russ and Betsy had sex, which resulted in him finding eight sperm, not hundreds of sperm that would be present from sex immediately before her death. Recall, Russ had said they did have sex on Sunday. Two days earlier, not the night she died. Russ is simply appalled that his relationship with a wife he loved is being characterized as rape and sadism. Asky wasn't done. She went on, quote, why doesn't he have blood on his clothes? Because I don't think he was wearing clothes. I think he walks past her into the kitchen, goes around the refrigerator to the butcher block and gets the steak knife out and comes around to where she's lying on the sofa. And he's really hopeful that he's going to stab her once in the neck and it's going to look like a suicide, end quote. She explains that we know this because of Russ's 911 call where he tells them it's a suicide. But no, Betsy sits up and struggles and he stabs her 55 times. Quote, it was personal. It was passionate. He gets her on the ground and at some point, The overall feeling is, oh, no, this went horribly wrong as reality sets in. Now what do I do? The killer gets careless. He goes back and takes a shower, gets any evidence off of him, and then comes out. And guess what? They have a dog. By nature, it's inquisitive. He throws the dog over to the kitchen and then gets it outside on the chain. At some point, he picks up his phone, gets his Arby's bag, and heads back to Troy to call in the suicide, or would I submit that Brandon Sweeney is the one who goes to Arby's, gets the receipt, and then drives across the street to Jack in the Box. Brandon Sweeney covers his butt with the receipt, drives to Troy, and gives the receipt, phone, and Arby's bag to Russ, just as he's calling 911 on the landline. You can tell he's moving around on that call, and while he's talking to 911, he realizes the slippers. The killer gets careless. He runs back to his bedroom. 911 already on the phone. He knows they're dispatching. He turns the light off because he doesn't want to tell them he was ever in the bedroom and quickly tosses the shoes into the closet. End quote. The absolute level of shock and amazement Joel Schwartz was experiencing is intense. Out of the blue, Brandon Sweeney is elevated from friend to murder accomplice in a fantasy plot contorting facts and logic beyond all reason. Recall, there is zero blood found in the shower, pipes, drains, nothing. I mean, this is fiction, and it's really bad fiction at that. Leah Askey continues going on about the killer. Quote, says on the 911 call that the dog was outside, but the paw print proves the dog was in the house. He lied. Russ Faria's behavior also incriminates him. The 911 director said so. Officer Hollingsworth says this. Detective Merkel and Floyd all judge him because Russ never needs a tissue, end quote. She stops after explaining that reasonable doubt is based upon common sense. And I did throw the book across the room again. That paw print was never proven to be a paw print. Do you have a dog? I mean, what dog leaves one paw print? Come on, murder bookies. Does a dog leave one paw print? No. Evidence matters, Miss Askey. Quoting from Bone Deep, Leah Askey's almost demented flight of fancy still seems to be echoing in Joel Schwartz's ears when it was time for his closing argument. Quote, It sounds to me that she just accused four people of being complicit in a murder Without one shred of evidence, that's offensive, end quote. Askey objects to personalizing the argument, and the judge shrugged, and Schwartz continued, quote, those people were accused of murder five minutes ago. Tonight's the night? End quote. Joel's closing began discussing the word proof. Russ came home and had sex, leaving eight sperm cells in his wife, but... Fonstock, the forensic DNA expert, said if it's recent sex, there are hundreds of sperm, not eight. Russ's story of having sex 48 hours earlier is supported by the evidence. That's proof. Also, Betsy was found in her clothes wrapped in a blanket. So when did she strip down and have sex? Proof. Russ got naked but kept his slippers on to kill his wife? Why would he do that? It makes no sense. Joel reiterated the videos and receipt evidence supported everything Russ told the police about his activities. That's proof. Russ left his cell phone at Mike Corbin's? There's nothing to prove that. But there is cell tower evidence that proves the opposite, that Russ's phone was with Russ on his way home exactly as he said. Four people testified that Russ was with them from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., never wavering. That's proof beyond reasonable doubt. Where is the proof of some grand conspiracy? It did not exist. Joel reviewed the text between Betsy and Russ, all completely normal and usual for the Tuesday night game. There's no evidence that something was being set up. Betsy only wanted to remind Russ to pick up dog food. And Russ says he put down the bag of dog food when he got home. The jury was shown a photo of where the dog food was, exactly matching what Russ said. Proof. The medical examiner testified that the killer had to have blood on him or her. There was no blood on Russ's hands, feet, hair, skin, or under his fingernails. He couldn't have washed up. The police checked the sinks and drains. Not one scintilla of blood was found. And there should be a lot. The police searched Russ's car. No blood. Only an Arby's bag, a receipt, two iced teas, one empty. Shocked, Russ sees Betsy on the floor. Wrist, arm slashed, knife in her neck. She threatened suicide before. Her history of depression, her fatal prognosis, And Russ jumps to the conclusion she killed herself. Now think, it's absurd to suggest that a killer who just inflicted 55 gruesome wounds to Betsy would expect the police to be misdirected by a suggestion she committed suicide. It makes no sense. It's not proof. Russ's behavior, crying, wailing, repeating no, no, no. Who knows how anyone would react in such circumstances? It's his grief. And the paw print? There's no conclusive evidence it's a paw print at all, or that it was blood, or when the mark occurred. No proof. Other than the slippers, the only physical evidence was blood on the switch plate in the bedroom, which had an apparent fabric pattern in it. Fabric similar to the bloody slippers. So gee, what happened there? If Russ had bloody slippers, wouldn't he have gotten rid of them? Then called 911. It seems more likely someone was carrying bloody slippers into the bedroom when they turned on the light because there were no bloody footprints anywhere. Schwartz also rejected ASCII's suggestion that the 55 wounds meant passion or rage. The killer wanted you to think that exactly. This is staging. The wounds were precise and inflicted from the same direction. And that does not fit the pattern of someone who's in a rage. Betsy was dead from wounds to her neck when the other cuts were made. So why? To make it look like the killer was in a rage. And frankly, if Russ wanted to collect insurance money, he didn't have to devise some crazy, complicated murder plot, drag his friends into a conspiracy and kill Betsy, exposing himself to prison or even lethal injection. All he had to do was wait a little longer. Betsy had terminal cancer. Yes, the state proved that Russ yelled at his stepdaughters and cursed, and that he could be degrading when annoyed, and that a friend of Betsy's, who met Russ three times in 10 years, didn't like him. And the bizarre murder theory concocted by the prosecution? Russ would have had to have set it all up by 4 p.m. once he learned Pam was driving Betsy home. He would have had to figure out the alibi, make all those stops, then instruct four people to cover for him when he went home to kill his wife. And this master criminal keeps his bloody slippers in his closet where the police can find them. Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is likely correct. Schwartz was finished. Asking now asked a bunch of questions. Why didn't Russ drink his other iced tea? well, I'm going to guess that he left it in the car. And why do we care? I don't care. Why was the only call to Russ's cell phone at 8.57pm? Because that was when his mother-in-law Janet called him? Why would Russ say she committed suicide? Um, Because he saw cuts on her arms and wrist with a knife in her neck and her mental health history? And then she did it again. Quote, Folks, we talked about reasonable inferences and evidence. There just isn't any evidence that points anywhere else. End quote. Oh, my God. Woman, mega puzzle piece here. Oh, my God. Joel Schwartz had fought this entire trial to present Pam Hupp and all the evidence pointing at her to the jury with ASCII fighting him and the judge failing to understand basic criminal law. And you guessed it, Joel jumps to his feet, erupting in a thundering objection for that violation. And Judge Menemeyer sustains the objection, striking Askey's comment from the record and telling the jury to disregard it. But the bell cannot be unwrong, And the state of Missouri versus Russell Faria went to the jury. But there was a come-to-Jesus moment. Assistant Prosecuting Attorney Mike Wood was in court that day to hear his boss, Leah Askey's, closing argument. Her crazy conspiracy argument left him not only embarrassed for her, but for everyone in her office and the entire judicial system. The argument Leah Askey presented was demented, without a shred of evidence to support her wild speculation. She was so far outside ethical guidelines and Mike Wood was just mortified. Her performance was so disturbing and odd that Mike Wood left ASCII's office and went to be an assistant PA in St. Charles County. But he'd be back. While deliberating, the jury requested a lot of evidence to review from the RB receipt to the cell tower data. Autopsy report, the photographs that existed. They were taking it all very seriously, but that pile of puzzle pieces, so much evidence had been denied them. Five hours later, the jury filed back into court with a verdict. The judge read it aloud. A jury of his peers found Russell Faria guilty of murder in the first. Russ, Schwartz, Nate all felt physically ill. Russ would spend the rest of his days in prison. Shocked, senseless, Russ was crushed, drained, and in disbelief, thinking someone came into my house, murdered my wife, and I'm going to prison for the rest of my life? Twelve people believe Askey's mind-bending tale of the killer husband? Schwartz shook off his shock as they pulled the jurors and told Russ, quote, this isn't over. I guarantee you that we will be back and we will beat this, end quote. Russ was handcuffed, escorted out of the courtroom, and off to jail as the Faria family, Lucy, Rachel, Mary Anderson, sobbed, just horrified. On the other side of the courtroom, Betsy's sister, Mary Rogers, told Chris Hayes of Fox 2, quote, after almost two years, justice has finally been served. I just hope people remember all the positive things about my sister. We cared for the man. He was part of the family, so it's hard, Maya Askie said she was glad Betsy's voice had been heard. Chris Hayes and Fox 2 then partnered with the St. Louis Dispatch reporter, Robert Patrick, to produce investigative stories questioning the evidence against Russ, Pam Hupp as a bonafide suspect, Leah Askey's conduct at the trial, and the evidence Judge and meyer kept from the jurors. A special Fox 2 report on this won an Emmy. After he reported on the evidence kept from the jury, Chris Hayes asked Leah Askey if jurors would be upset, and she responded, quote, No, I don't believe so. Part of our process, part of our constitution, gives us different rights, and there are protocols that go into every case that's tried. So things that are prejudicial to either one side or the other, you know, the judge has to weigh those things. End quote. Um, I know you'll be shocked that Leah Askey was wrong. After the verdict, Chris Hayes noted Schwartz's is outraged and asked him what was next, with Joel replying, quote, we file an appeal and we do this again. There was evidence pointing to another, but the court kept that out. Quote. The case against Pam Hupp began November twenty first, twenty thirteen, the day of Russ's conviction. Following up, reporter Chris Hayes spoke to the air quote surprise murder accomplices from Russ's game night friends. Brandon Sweeney told him quote this really sickens my stomach because I tried to help them out the whole time, be honest and truthful, just try to find out what happened that night, end quote. Angelica Hillian said, quote, it makes me sick. It really did. I just can't believe it. I can't believe things like this happened, end quote. Marshall Back chimed in saying, quote, faith in the justice system and authority figures? There's no faith in them anymore. You see something like this happen." I mean, I don't know. You almost go around town wondering who's going to screw me over next. Sweeney so added, quote, It almost makes you second guess working with the authorities. End quote. And Mike Corbin said, quote, If we're guilty of something, we should be arrested. But we don't want to be here. Leah Askey put us here by saying our friend committed a crime that he could not have possibly committed. I mean, he was within eight feet of us all that night. There's no way he committed this crime, End quote. Now, speaking with some of the jurors after they learned what had been withheld from them during the trial, Chris Hayes found most were angry. Juror Ken Masterson told him, quote, my whole life, I've heard the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Well, that's leaving out some of the truth. This isn't, you know, somebody's paying a $30 fine or six days in jail. This is life in prison. You need to know everything, end quote. Jur Debbie Bray felt similarly, quote, Then we find out later the things we didn't get to hear. It's upsetting. I was very upset about it. You've got someone's life in your hands, and you want to make sure you're making the right decision, end quote. Ken Masterson also said, quote, Everybody there wanted to make the right decision. There was no one there that was like, Oh, the hell with you guys. He's guilty. Everybody there was willing to listen to everybody else. End quote. On how they came back with the verdict, Ken Masterson told Chris that the alibi witnesses did not help Russ saying, quote, their stories were a little bit too good, a little too rehearsed. End quote. That's a final puzzle piece. Not that I like it very much. On December 23rd, 2013, Almost two years since Betsy's murder, Russ was forced to listen to victim impact statements by the family, people he had loved for years. Betsy's sister, Julia Sweeney, spoke, reiterating much of the misinformation from the trial while describing how they all missed their beloved sister. My heart breaks to the pain of this loss. It really does. My heart goes out to them. Judge Christina Menenmeyer sentenced Russell Faria to life in prison after rejecting Schwartz's call for the verdict to be overturned or a new trial arranged. Schwartz asked the judge to set a bond so Russ could be at home as the case was appealed. Then Meyer declined, and Russ found himself in his cell at the Jefferson City Correctional Center. So how did the jury come to this verdict? During the trial, you and I collected six puzzle pieces at every unfair, biased ruling that came down. They were, one, the catastrophic ruling that the defense was prohibited from arguing there was another possible suspect, with both motive and opportunity. An example, stricken from the record, a question asking why Pam's location and clothing on December twenty 2011 hadn't been investigated. Stricken. Two, Pam Hupp's changing story and statements to police. 3. Pam's cell tower data, putting her at or near Betsy's when Pam made the 727 call about the time Betsy was murdered. 4. The Russ and Betsy marriage, improving markedly after counseling at their church and even more after her cancer diagnosis. 5. The 911 supervisor, who had not taken Russ's 911 call, being permitted to testify on Russ's demeanor during the trial. 6. Although stricken from the record, the jury heard Russ's alibi witnesses refused to take polygraphs, which was not true, nor, as the law demanded, can such a refusal be used to impact their character. Lacking this information, plus what we've already discussed today, I can see we have a severely handicapped jury trying to come to a just decision and failing miserably. The fault lies with Prosecutor Leah Askey. And Judge Christina Menemeyer. With the attention of Fox 2 and other media, anonymous tips were coming in about Pam Hubb. The Post Dispatch headline on November 1, 2013, read quote, Woman 77 dies after falling from third floor balcony of Fenton area retirement home. End quote. Apparently, Pam's mom, Shirley Newman, had broken through her balcony metal railing plunging three feet to her death. Her body was found around 2 p.m. the next day. The last person to have seen her alive was her daughter, Pam Hub. She would later tell people her mother died of Alzheimer's. Why had she lied about her mother's cause of death? Hmm. Pam Hub stood to get a windfall again after her mother's death, although she maintained that she had no financial problems. Back in June 2012, Pam had told Sergeant McCarrick, and I'm paraphrasing now, that if she needed money, her mother was worth half a million dollars and was a much more vulnerable victim than younger, stronger Betsy. It would be much easier for her to kill her mom. On Shirley Newman's death, the newspapers quoted the St. Louis County Police saying there was damage to several of the vertical spindles in the rail of the aluminum balcony caused by Miss Newman's falling against and through the bars. Two spindles were on the ground next to the body. Oddly, the horizontal top and bottom balcony bars were intact, undamaged. So I have to ask how a 218-pound, or 99-kilogram, Shirley managed to slide between the top and bottom bars? Had she dove head first? that makes no sense. Police were investigating it as an accident, but Joel Schwartz saw this as something far, far more sinister. An autopsy report found Shirley Newman had eight times the normal dose of Ambien, a sleep-inducing drug classified as the sedative hypnotic in her system. I have heard this reported on Dateline as 14 times the normal dose. But either way, there was way too much ambient in her system. The cause of death was blunt force trauma. Follow up news stories reported that police learned after visiting Shirley, Pam had told the staff at Lakeview Park Independent Senior Living that her mom wouldn't be down to dinner because she already ate and she'd missed breakfast in the morning. When Shirley didn't come down for lunch, the maid found her dead three stories below. But the police closed the review never interviewing Pam Hupp. Why the hell would you not interview Pam Hupp, the last person to see her alive? Joel Schwartz is as baffled as I am. And for the second time, for the second time, Pam was at the center of a suspicious, violent death that puts hundreds of thousands of dollars in her pocket. Independently, reporter Chris Hayes and Keith Morrison of Dateline had experts evaluate if a 218 pound woman could break through the metal spindles of an aluminum railing. Hayes brought in a structural engineer who tested a similar railing made by the same manufacturer using a 218 pound or 99 kilogram pendulum and slammed it into the railing to determine what kind of force would be required to dislodge or bend the spindles enough for a person to fall through. They learned that the physical force Shirley Newman could employ would not damage the railings or dislodge the spindles. Only when the pendulum was pulled back 65 inches or 165 centimeters, striking the rail at 9 miles per hour, think 14 kilometers per hour, did it damage and dislodge the spindles. This is equivalent to an NFL linebacker charging full speed at the railing. Dateline hired a structural engineer who came to similar conclusions. It would take 2,000 pounds of force, 907 kilograms, to damage the railing. And that was not what would happen if Shirley Newman tripped against it. Both separate evaluations flatly rejected Shirley falling into the railing. No way did this happen like this, conclusion, due to science. There was some good news, though. In 2017, the St. Louis Dispatch reported that the medical examiner changed Shirley Newman's cause of death from accident to undetermined. And her death is now being properly investigated as I speak, so stay tuned. In the summer of 2014, Joel Schwartz received a call from a fellow St. Louis attorney, David T. Budge. Budge had filed suit against Pam Hope for Betsy's daughters, Leah Day and Mariah Day, over the insurance non-payment to them. Budge was preparing to depose Pam and wanted any insights Joel might have after experiencing the same frustrating, infuriating reaction that Schwartz described in trying to get a straight or even sensible answer out of Pam. Schwartz writes That while David Budge first thought Pam was a nitwit, he now saw her as a manipulative psychopath. Budge also had a few tidbits to share with Joel as well. Shortly after Russ was convicted, Pam revoked the hundred thousand dollar trust she set up for Betsy's daughters, withdrawing all but three hundred dollars. The rest going into her personal account. Cha ching! Pam used the money to pay bills and invest in real estate. But wait. I thought the hubs were financially sound, retirement accounts, investments, though she did say she had no health insurance and couldn't afford her specialist doctor in statements to the police. Hmm. Anywho, the suit filed by the daughters claimed Pam breached the agreement with Betsy that was the grounds for making Pam her beneficiary, that Pam would give the money to Leia and Mariah when they were older. Also of major significance, On video, Pam said that she opened this trust under pressure from Sergeant Ryan McCarrick and implied pressure from Leah Askey because the trust would make their case stronger against Russ at trial. Boom! This is a big alleged no-no. Pressuring witnesses to do anything is misconduct and these revelations also meant Pam had lied under oath revealing her greedy self-interest. This, allegedly, is the real motive for Betsy's murder. Butch had called, as Joel was weighing, the best method of getting Russ an appeal. There's a really stringent criteria under Missouri law for getting an appeal. Ultimately, Joel chose to include these new revelations from Butch in his new evidence appeal, which was assembled by his colleague, Hannah Zhao, filed December 1st, 2014. This appeal also cited the litany of errors made by Judge Menemeyer plus the misconduct of Askey. Not putting all their eggs in one basket, Hannah Zhao recalled a case from three decades earlier, the state of Missouri versus Mooney. In Mooney, the defense learned that an alleged victim, who testified the defendant molested him at trial, was later taped admitting he had lied and made up the entire story. The appellate court ruled that it had the authority and discretion to prevent a miscarriage of justice, sending the case back to trial court, even though this evidence was not part of the original trial, and the time for asking for a new trial had already lapsed. Now, this was a long shot. Successful Mooney motions were extremely rare, happening only three times in Missouri's history. So on February 4th, 2015, Schwartz filed a wing and a prayer Mooney motion. He charged that Sergeant Ryan McCarrick and prosecuting attorney Askey pressured a witness to take action designed to benefit the prosecution, violating the defendant's rights, knowing that a witness lied before the judge, with the prosecution filing motions to protect that witness from scrutiny by the defense. Would Missouri v. Faria be the fourth? I'm not going to make you wait. It was. In a lightning speed response, weird and amazing. Chief Appellate Judge Angela T. Quiglis ordered Russ's case sent back to the trial courts to determine if a new trial was warranted. Hallelujah. Schwartz had two weeks to get the ball rolling and the appellate court had 90 days to render a decision. On telling Russ, he said, Quote, Joel, that's great, it's about time we got a good decision. End quote. When this went down, Russ had been a prisoner for fourteen months, which followed two years in the county jail. Every single day is too long for an innocent man. Every day. But what was this time in prison like? Befriending older inmates, working in the kitchen washing dishes, Russ moved up to preparing meals for those with special diets. He chose to work seven days a week to keep himself out of his cell as much as possible. Even with a small TV, it's boring being in a cell 23 hours a day with the only time out for a shower or brief visit to the yard. Russ got involved with the prison chapter of Toastmasters International, a nonprofit that taught public speaking and leadership skills. It put him into contact with those who wanted to improve themselves and maybe he could learn skills that would be useful on the outside. The hope burned within. March saw Judge Christina Mendenmayer recuse herself from the new Faria trial. Reading this, I was taken aback. Good Lord, she is still on the bench. I guess I thought the Justice fairy swooped in and took her away, never to be heard or seen from again. But no, okay, reality check. There is no fairy godmother of justice that does this. We do this with our citizenship, with due diligence, holding our officials accountable and voting. Another judge was assigned, but was also rather inexperienced. And no, 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 this was not going to happen to them again. Joel exercised his right to request a different judge. So he wound up with St. Louis Circuit Judge Stephen R. Ulmer. Who had 21 years' experience, and he would be the judge presiding over Russ's appeal. At the hearing on June 5th, the defense and prosecution were hunkered down in the trenches, lobbing grenades at each other, squabbling, disagreeing, battle lines drawn. Judge Omer reviewed all the evidence, including transcripts of Panhup's interviews, plus the deposition of lawyer David Booge. And Judge Omar granted Russ Feria a new trial, as the evidence was, quote, so material that it is likely to produce a different result, end quote. Omer further ruled that the Hupp testimony proved she was a person with opportunity or motive to commit the murder, and this directly connected Pam Hupp and the crime, reversing the decision previous judge Men and Meyer made who, in spite of being presented with a hundred cases of evidence, insisted did not exist. So it's a total victory for Team Russ. Trial was set 1st, November 2nd, 2015. Schwartz, Russ, and Swanson were absolutely gleeful. Joel said, quote, I told you we'd be back and do this again, end quote. And a grinning Russ said, yes, you did. I never doubted it. Prosecutor Leah Askey said she was prepared to try Russ Faria again. All right, full disclosure, I really dislike this woman intensely. All right, she remains an embarrassment to American justice. Six days later, Russ was transferred back to the Lincoln County jail in Troy to wait trial. No more maximum security at a state prison for him. The absolutely best news came on June 16th. When Faria cousin Mary Anderson, who'd been instrumental in getting Joel Schwartz as Russ's lawyer to begin with, posted her home as security for Russ's $500,000 bond and paid $17,000 in cash to a bail bondsman. For the first time in three and a half years, Russ Faria was out of jail. I feel tears welling up. Family and friends swamped Russ going to a restaurant to celebrate. The icing on the cake was that his driver's license was still valid and his sister Rachel let Russ drive to go see his dad. (sighs) Russ also spoke with Fox 2 Chris Hayes on how much he enjoyed getting up and having a fried egg for breakfast. Such appreciation for the little things that we all take for granted. Within a week, Russ began a remote IT job craving some normalcy. But sadness marred this joyous time when Mary Anderson's husband, Steve, died of a heart attack at 51. The same detectives who investigated Betsy's death prevented Mary from seeing her husband for over seven hours. Due diligence or just being assholes? Karma will absolutely sort this out. Karma. Planning the second trial... Nate Swanson's eyes bugged out as he listened to Pam Hupp's June seventeenth, 2015 interview with police. He thought, quote, no, she's not really going to say that. No, no, even Pam Hupp wouldn't say that. Wait, oh my God, she's, wait, she's going to say it. Oh my God, she said it. What the f- end quote. New information. Pam now claimed that she and Betsy were lovers. Pam also insisted that neither was a lesbian and both were attracted to men, Pam citing her love of Magic Mike. She explained that Betsy had come to depend on her for an intimate level of emotional support that Russ failed to give her. Betsy had developed a mad crush on her, which grew into something more. Captain Mike Merkel clarified, quote, you were filling the voids that she felt in her marriage, End quote. Pam said, quote, yes, she was in love with me, and at that point, I knew what was happening with her, and I just let it go because it was a small, small thing to give her, end quote. She claimed Russ was furious when he found out about the sex between Pam and Betsy, which led to a violent threat. So let's digest this together. While married, Betsy had had affairs. And every two weeks or so, slept with her ex-husband, Ron, plus her marital sex with Russ. But she and Pam were lovers, but they weren't gay. All right, that's just a hard no. I just don't believe her. I just don't, don't believe her. Joel Schwartz was stunned to hear this latest bizarre flight of fancy. Russ was outraged. Quote, that's a total lie, total bullshit that never happened, end quote. But there's more a new police video emerged. Detective Patrick Harney, one of the first officers on the murder scene back in December, 2011, told Pam that he and Captain Mike Merkel's theory on what happened that night. I mean, they were just chatting amongst themselves, as you do. And I'm totally paraphrasing this, that their latest theory was that Russ was not at the house when Pam and Betsy arrived home. But prior to Pam's leaving, Russ knew that Pam was there possibly by seeing Pam's car parked outside, and Russ came home with both women there, indicating that the motivating factor for Pam's leaving was Russ's arrival. Harney says on the taped interview, quote, So now I'm going to hand that to you and ask, is any part of that correct? And if, in fact, you did see Russ that night in the house, end quote. Pam responded with a flat quote, no, I did not see Russ in the house. I didn't see a soul. I didn't see anybody. End quote. All right. So Pam is not changing her story this time, but this suggestion by Harney is allegedly witness tampering, which is inappropriate and possibly illegal, but Pam didn't go for it. Fast forward four months as the defense watched Pam's October 6th interview. That seed planted from the earlier interview flourished as Pam suddenly had a recovered memory. Remember, this is the woman who claims to have memory problems. Or was it balance problems? Or was it neck problems? I don't know. I can't keep up. Anyway, Pam said that after walking by Betsy's house to refresh her memory, it hit her. And she remembered she had seen Russ and another man in a parked car on the street near the Faria home. When she and Betsy arrived at her house that night, Russ ducked his head when they went by. Well, how convenient was that? Now, the cops, of course, bought into Pam's latest as she rattled on about brain injury and three car accidents in three years and how she took Ambient regularly. Ambient? Where have we heard about Ambient before? Oh, Yeah. Number eight times the normal dose of Ambient was found in her mother, Shirley Newman's system after the fall from the balcony? Well, anyway, Barney's response on video is, quote, I don't have any reason to think you're wrong, End quote. My common sense superpower is tingling. I have every reason to think that is bull dinky. Red flag on the play. No way. In May, Leah Askey met with Pam to discuss her likely testimony at the new trial and focused on her denial that she ever promised Betsy she'd give money to her daughters, that she felt pressured to set up the trust fund for them just prior to Russ's first trial, and had actually revoked the trust after the girls had spoken poorly about her. Would the judge believe us? Asked Pam earnestly, firmly on Teen Askey, who did not correct this impression and implied, quote, I feel comfortable the law is on our side, end quote. And on video, the women go on to share complaints about being maligned by the media's misleading stories just two gal pals supporting each other. How quaint. On October 1st, 2015, Joel made a decision that almost every colleague warned him not to make. Impressed with Judge Ulmer's decisions and rulings thus far, to both defense and prosecution, they decided that Russ would waive his right to a jury trial. Judge Omer would hear the evidence and return, earn the verdict. No voir dire, no picking a jury. The judge would decide the case, and it was a risk. The trial began November 2, 2015. Prosecutor Leah Askey did not mention Pam Hupp by name in her opening. This caused Joel's eyebrow to shoot up as he noted it. Some new evidence had popped up on the prosecution's end of things, too. The letter Pam claimed Betsy told her about, that she'd supposedly written to Pam just before the beneficiary switcheroo was found, it described Russ as abusive and threatening, as well as Betsy's fear of him. Askey also added a new twist in attacking the gamers and Russ's alibi, accusing them of lying about the sequence of events that evening. She insisted they all said that they were playing a board game before watching two movies, then changed their stories. Then she told the judge that Russ had a mistress ever since Betsy's cancer diagnosis in 2009, continuing right through Betsy's death, and that she was pregnant. No, not true. Russ had had a four-month-long relationship years back, but none of the rest of that is true. Russ just tucked his anger down deep. Joel opened simply, summarizing some key points in the case, which would be based on evidence, not theories. He focused on Pam Hupp, the only one who knew about this letter of Betsy's. Although Pam had never seen it, she had known its exact contents. How had that happened? Russ was Betsy's beneficiary since 2001, right after they married. And through their separations, infidelities, troubles with the daughters, that had never changed. Pam became the beneficiary, and snap! Betsy was murdered. And most importantly, the police failed to get an account of Pam's version of her activities and thoroughly failed to interview her husband Mark properly. Joel told Judge Ulmer quote, They didn't talk to a soul to confirm anything whatsoever that she said. End quote. Prosecution witness, police officer Mike Priddle, testified that he had seen water droplets in the shower of the Berea home. Whoa, whoa. Four years of investigation, certainly long after the fact, and now this just pops up. Trusting his gut plus 25 years of experience, Joel Schwartz knew this wasn't true. He challenged Officer Priddle, was it true his observations about water droplets appears nowhere in not one report and thus is entirely undocumented? Correct, Prittle replied. Priddle agreed he wasn't saying someone took a shower, just that he saw two or three water droplets. He saw no wet walls or drains. In a rare move, Judge Ulmer leaned forward and asked his own questions. Where were the water droplets? How big were they? Prittle described them as being about mid-tub and less than the size of a dime. Clarifying, Judge Ulmer asked, quote, no report contained this observation, end quote. That's correct, was the reply. Jolt thought the testimony was a wash. (laughs) I love that. Mariah and Leah Day testified in similar fashion to the first trial. Mariah admitted Betsy had previously been suicidal and had been hospitalized as a result. She also admitted that in December 2011, on hearing of Betsy's death, she initially thought her mother had committed suicide. Betsy's sisters, Pamela and Mary, made similar admissions. Pamela said that while they were unhappy, Betsy and Russ had done counseling and that Betsy was working hard to make their marriage work. Pamela confirmed she was surprised that Betsy had made Pam Huck beneficiary, but Pam said that she would give the money to Mariah and Leah. Mary would repeat the same assertion about the money going to the girls. Mary also repeated the story of Russ and Betsy arguing back in 2004 when she had to call the police. But this time she admitted it was a long time ago. Betsy and Russ had worked through their issues and loved each other very much. Mary also confirmed that Leah and Mariah had filed suit against Pam to recover the insurance money. Bobby Wan was a friend of the Meyer family since they were neighbors way back in 1969. On the stand, Bobby said Betsy had said that Russ put a pillow over her face, which verified Pam Hupp's story, but Betsy had not provided any details. Bobby knew Russ could be verbally abusive, and she confirmed Pam was changed to the beneficiary because Betsy wanted the girls to get the money, with Pam agreeing to do so. Schwartz went gently with this elderly woman, who is now 80 years old, and he was sure that these ideas had been planted by Pam Hupp, and it had not actually occurred. First Joel had Bobby confirm that Pam Hupp showing up at the chemo session was a surprise to Betsy, who said, quote, she had been told not to come, end quote. He gently recalled her statements at the time, which did not mention insurance or pillows, did they? A bit indignant, Bobby agreed that these statements were absent from the police reports written at the time of the murder. When Bobby said that the idea of buying Janet Meyer's house is what brought on Betsy's death, Joel had to challenge her. Bobby admitted that she did not know if Betsy had discussed the idea with Russ. Then they got to the topic of insurance, with Joel inadvertently calling Bobby Mrs. Hupp, who bristled, mortified. Joel was embarrassed and apologized profusely. I was really uncomfortable for Joel reading this. I mean, I really felt for him. Can you imagine? And now, witness Bobby Wan is not looking to be very cooperative. Regrouping. Joel asked Bobby if three days after Betsy's death, she had actually told police Russ held a pillow over Betsy's face. No, Bobby admitted, adding she didn't know why she hadn't mentioned it then. Next came director of communication, Margie Harrell, and Russ's 911 call. Fun facts. In her new testimony, Margie Harrell dropped a new statistic. 30% of the 25,000 911 calls reporting homicides are placed by the killer. I did not know that. Dispatchers are trained to evaluate how callers handle the call, putting them on a scale rating the probability that it's actually the killer. This is called COPS, considering offender probability and statements. I didn't know this either. How cool is that? Way to go, 911 operators. Cop factors evaluated are pleas for help, whether the pleas are for the victim or for the caller, sense of urgency, not providing extraneous information, not relating to the emergency, and caller voice modulations. Operators are trained to calm the caller using repetitive persistence, repeatedly asking questions, and telling the caller to take a deep breath. After playing the 911 call for the judge, Askey asked, quote, Is that what re-freak sounds like? End quote. Objection! The prosecution could not evaluate Russ's call as the judge had previously ruled, with Ulmer sustaining the objection. Askey's approach was shut down with more objections and sustained rulings and defense attorney Nate Swanson didn't even bother to cross Harold her testimony was so insignificant to the defense. Amy Pratt Butner, the now-married crime scene investigator, was back on the stand. She testified that she'd taken 700 photos of the house inside and out. Her search of the bathtub and sink found no water droplets or any evidence they'd recently been used. She said the shower curtain and towels were all dry. She declined to test for blood with luminol because she only did that if there was evidence of cleanup or a body had been moved, not in the case of the Faria murder. Luminol wasn't used until eight days later, on January third, 2012, after the scene had become contaminated by other investigators. Amy pratt Butner testified there was a cloth pattern on the bloody switch plate and that she found no bloody footprints. The slippers appeared to be bloody from swiping, not walking, and it was completely impossible for someone to stab Betsy 55 times and not be covered in blood. Next up, Detective Mike Merkel, described in Bone Deep as an unrepentant and blatantly obnoxious cop, described the blood at the scene as, quote, some of it appeared to be wet and some of it appeared to have been drying, end quote. He also said Russ's emotion, quote, came to light more or so when he was by himself and there was no one around. It seemed to be very over the top, very exaggerated, end quote. The police position is that Russ, who had no idea he was being videotaped, only exaggerated his emotions when he was alone, not when he was with the police, who could actually see his performance but Russ was definitely faking grief and despair. I can't even, that makes just no sense. Just no sense. Merkel also stated on January 3rd, 2012, that he'd used Blue Star in the kitchen to test for blood residue, which did glow in several places, but the police camera malfunctioned and there were no photos. Now Schwartz was up at bat. Hatton Merkel testified at the first trial, that the photos of the Blue Star application showed, quote, absolutely nothing, and there were no photos of this as the camera malfunctioned. Merkel agreed he had. Quote, so there were no pictures that were developed that day, end quote, asked Schwartz. No, I don't believe so. Schwartz handed Merkel a manila folder containing a thick stack of documents and asked him to identify them. bum Quote, "it would be the photographs from that day" end quote. as joel handed copies to an astounded ASCII. snap asky muttered quote, "where did you get those" end quote. significantly the prosecution had unethically failed to disclose this critical evidence to the defense a computer disk of the photos had been delivered to schwartz's office anonymously well, thank you for honesty, decency, and integrity, anonymous person. Later, Joel did try to find out who this was and failed. Schwartz asked if the photos in Merkel's hand showed absolutely nothing, and Merkel muttered, quote, As far as chemical luminescence? No, sir, it does not, end quote. Schwartz let him dangle and dance around his words for a time, and then reiterated, There was nothing on the 132 photos indicating a reaction to blood. Merkel agreed there was not. Going through the sink photos, towels, drawers, tiles on the floor, Merkel had to say there was no blood on any of them. Bazinga! This kind of thing angers me so much. Book thrown across the room again. Framing an innocent man for what reason? certainly not justice. Major Ray Floyd told Schwartz that when he was accusing Russ of murdering Betsy for hours on end, that Pam Hupp, the last person to see Betsy alive, had just become her beneficiary days earlier. However, Floyd admitted he did not know Betsy had failed to answer the three previously arranged phone calls that night, He did not know that Pam placed a call to Betsy's cell phone barely 20 minutes after she left, didn't know that Pam told the police that she didn't go inside and then later said she had gone inside. Floyd did know four of Russ's friends confirmed he was with them 30 minutes away from his house until 9 p.m. It was clear that by the time Floyd interviewed Russ, the major case squad had already concluded Russ killed Betsy. Had any officers spoken to Pam's husband? Neighbors? Friends? Floyd had no idea. Lots of I don't knows, but they arrested Russ anyway. Floyd actually said he was just following the leads that he had been given. Oh my God, did he really say I was just following orders? Didn't that defense go out in 1946? That's why investigation matters. He didn't follow the evidence. He didn't look for the evidence. He just jumped to conclusions. And then it was time for Detective Ryan McCarrick to take the stand. Asky asked why Pam Huck wasn't investigated. He basically said at that point, they saw no reason for her to be investigated any further than she was. And he admitted the major case squad had made a mistake. Well, at least he admitted it. Had Pam shown evidence of deception? No. All right, now here's when I laughed out loud. Miss gobbledygook double talk? Really? Seriously? But McCarrick now said that regarding the trust for Betsy's daughters, he had only said that Pam needed to make a decision so her intentions were known. No, not buying it, detective. You're on video. No, uh uh-uh. Schwartz asked McCarrick about his June twenty fifth, 2012 interview with Pam, to clear up some inconsistencies in her statements. Why had McCarrick called her statements, contradicting each other multiple times, differences? Just differences? And McCarrick said, well, yes, correct. Had McCarrick repeatedly urged her to set up the trust before the first trial so it would look good? Yes. Did he know she withdrew almost all the money from that trust within days of Russ's conviction? He had heard that. Had McCarrick investigated cell tower records to determine where Pam Hupp was when she called Betsy at 7.27 p.m.? No. Was it true the only evidence regarding Pam's whereabouts came from her husband, Mark, telling police the next morning, which did not include when his wife got home and there was no follow-up? Yes. Could he say where Pam Hupp was when Betsy was killed? No, he could not. But... Pam gained $150,000? Yes, McCarrick confirmed. Huh? Betsy's mom, Janet Myers' questioning, was as delicate as Bobby Wands. She said to police that Betsy and Russ had a great relationship, but that Betsy's relationship with her daughter was more rocky. Yes, she had said that. Joel asked if Betsy could cut her daughters out of their inheritance. Quote, no, no, she wanted the money for them. End quote. Had she said a month before her death that Russ and the girls would be well taken care of? She had. Janet also characterized Pam Hupp as Betsy's, quote, 10th to 20th best friend, end quote, whom Janet described as, quote, a money-grubbing not a nice word, end quote. But Janet did not believe that Pam was a murderer. Probing her relationship with Russ, Janet admitted that she and Russ had been close and had a good relationship most of the marriage. Today, four years after trial number one, Janet said that Russ had gotten meaner in the months before Betsy was killed. Joel would ask about the initial investigation and first trial. Had Janet told the police Russ had gotten meaner and their relationship had gotten worse? No, Janet had not. Sworn in, Rita Wolf, a close friend of Betsy's, who she's known since high school, spoke plainly. Rita said that Detective Ryan McCarrick lied when he said before the first trial he had not pushed Betsy's family to not sue Pam Hunt for the insurance money. Quote, he wanted me to quit forcing the issue of them suing at the time. He wanted them to wait until after the trial. End quote. Rita drove home quite a few times that Betsy had discussed providing for her family with Rita. And the last time they talked, Betsy had decided to make her sister, Julie Swaney, beneficiary to make sure that the money went to her daughters. Rita had gotten the sense that Russ, in his grief, might be reckless with money. Betsy had been fine with Russ being beneficiary on the other policies. Had Betsy been scared of Russ? No, no, she was not, said Rita. Now the mystery letter Betsy wrote to Pam, found after four years, was introduced. The state's witness, Detective Robert O'Neill of the St. Charles County Cyber Task Force, discovered it during a deep dive of Betsy's computer. It was opened with Betsy's profile and password on December twenty second, 2011, took 15 minutes to write between 11.55 a.m. and 12.10 p.m and was titled P-Doc. The whole letter is posted on my blog at www.murdershopbookclub.com, but I'll read you the critical parts. Pam, I need you to believe me. I really do feel that Russ is going to do something to me. He was very angry at me for being in the house, and then I caught him with my laptop. He was reading my emails. When I asked him, he said he could do what he wants. He said I won't be around much longer, so what do I care? He wants me to stay at my mom's house. He likes the house to himself. He tells me it's his house and I'm just a guest. He continues to tell me how much money he'll make after I died. Last night was the worst. I fell asleep on the couch and I woke to Russ holding a pillow over my face. I didn't know what was going on. He said he wanted me to know what dying felt like. I need to change my life insurance policy out of his name but I can't let him know that I've taken him off as beneficiary. I need your help with this. I can't give it to my girls because they'll blow it. Do you think I could put it in your name and that you could help my daughters when they need it? I'm so afraid of staying in Troy alone with Russ. If something happens to me, would you please show this to police? Love, Bets. O'Neill now testified that there was no way to know the origins of the letter or who used Betsy's profile to open the computer, or even if there was an Outlook email account on the laptop. Defense attorney Nate Swanson asked, quote, you're not aware that Betsy Faria used webmail exclusively and did not use Outlook? End quote. O'Neill replied, quote, I did not know that. End quote. And it was downhill for O'Neill from this point forward, which I admit to smiling a lot while reading it. Joel enjoyed calling Sergeant Ryan McCarrick to the stand. He asked, had Pam told him she and Betsy had been at the tennis club the week before she was killed? Had Pam said that Betsy wrote the email letter about her fearing Russ while they were at the tennis club? And McCarrick responded, yes, yes. Pam had said that, as the transcript of that interview proved. Joel now called private investigator and computer expert guy. Greg Chatton to the stand. We know Greg Chatton. Chatton testified that this letter was the only document in Betsy's computer that listed the author as unknown. Everything else was either attributed to Betsy or a family member. Chatton testified that the only way it would show unknown is if if it was created on a different computer, or it was created on Betsy's laptop with the author's name deliberately changed to unknown. That letter document was also created in Word 97. Betsy's computer only had Word 2003. Hence, it was impossible that that document was written on Betsy's computer. It had to be created on a different computer. He testified that although a Microsoft Outlook email program had been run at least once on the computer, no email software was installed. It could not send or receive emails. And Chatton confirmed this document was created on December 22nd, 2011, about the time the computer was connected to a wireless connection named The Club, which was the name of the tennis club's Wi-Fi where Pam and Betsy visited. So I have to conclude that the document was written on a different computer using a different system but saved to Betsy's computer while at the tennis club. Chatton also testified about the cell phone calls Pam Hubb placed that night. Her call at 7.04 and 7.27 p.m. were made from the same cell tower sector where Betsy's home is located, both of them. This sector did not cover the highway at Troy or Pam's home near O'Fallon, both locations where Pam had claimed she made the 727 call from. An analysis of Russ's cell phone showed the cell towers matching the exact route he claims to have taken home from game night. Detective Sergeant Patrick Harney was questioned by Leah Askey, and he said that he and Harry Belcher worked together to compare transparencies of the soles of the slipper to the bloody pattern on the switch plate. Quote, the shoe print is consistent with the marks left on the light switch, end quote. He also accepted the police reports as accurate, even those with Pam contradicting herself in them. Schwartz's cross of Harney was extensive, as he had been involved with many of Pam's 13 interviews from 2011 to 2015. In June 2015, Three and a half years after the murder, Pam told Detective Sergeant Harney that she and Betsy had been lovers and that Russ was furious and threatening them. Did Harney ask Pam why this hadn't come up in the previous three and a half years? No. Was Pam accurate when she said of Russ, quote, I really don't know him that much, though he's always been very nice to me. I don't know the hardcore stuff, end quote. Harney indicated that was accurate. But I'm confused because Russell was very nice to her, even though he had threatened to kill her. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Harney agreed Pam had testified that money wasn't a problem for her, that $150,000 wasn't a great deal, and at the same time, she told him she couldn't afford health insurance. No, Harney wasn't aware of that. Again, investigating officers not knowing important case information. Carney also admitted mentioning his and Detective Mike Merkel's theory that Russ arrived at the house that night while Betsy and Pam were there, which is why Pam left. He had asked Pam if she had seen Russ in the house that night. Quote, Yes, I did say that, and I believe we'd spoken in theory before about what we believed. End quote. Right. And are you suggesting that she saw Russ that night? Quote, I told her what I believed, end quote, which, murder bookies, is called coaching the witness, which contaminates the investigation and under some circumstances can be a felony. And the state rested. The defense witnesses, Rhonda Graham, Linda Harriman, Russ's aunt by marriage, and Ashley Frost, who testified as to their friendship with Betsy and how well the Faria marriage was going after they'd received counseling with the Star United Methodist Church and how they'd shared teenage daughter issues and how they went out together as couples. At the December 2011 Girls Weekend Away, which Pam was not invited to, Betsy never discussed leaving Russ or getting a divorce. They had joked about going to work on a farm and getting free college tuition, but they were all teasing and laughing. Betsy had been upbeat and positive. And then the shit hit the fan. Rushing into Judge Ulmer's chamber, Joel Schwartz and Nate Swanson had just received pertinent information from another attorney who represented the balcony railing manufacturer that Pam Hupp's mother, Shirley Newman, supposedly fell through. Emailing copies of the police reports to the investigation of the fall that killed Mrs. Newman, the circumstances could be relevant to Russ's trial. Pam Hupp had denied killing Betsy to Detective McCarrick, adding that she could have collected way more money, more easily, by killing her own mother. Remember that charming comment? These reports on Shirley Newman's death revealed that Pam was the last person to see her alive, telling staff she'd be unavailable until the next day. The manufacturer's attorney believed the railings had been tampered with and noted that the daughter had inherited her mother's money, a circumstance similar to the Faria murder. Schwartz requested a three-day delay so they could locate employees from the retirement community. As Asky was out to lunch, oh boy, is that ever true, Assistant PA George Gundy was opposed, quote, one murder case at a time is probably plenty, end quote. And the judge concurred with Grundy, but quipped, quote, I'm glad I'm not closely related somehow, end quote. which is freaking hilarious because the judge is getting it and making jokes. I love common sense. Detective Paul Barish of the St. Peter's Police Department testified to the steps he'd taken to confirm Russ's alibi, which checked out at every point with all four game night witnesses. Once again, Mike Corbin. Angelica Hillian, Brandon Sweeney, Marshall Bach testified, telling the same stories they've been telling for four years. No one had told ASCII that they played a board game prior to watching movies. Mike Corbin testified that the police weren't taking notes during his interview, so he understood how they got it wrong. Marshall Bach testified that two weeks before trial, the police had come to his workplace. Offering immunity if he would change his testimony. He felt threatened. Schwartz asked him, quote, Did you need immunity for anything? End quote. Quote, no, I didn't do anything wrong, End quote, was Marshall's response. Asky made a weak attempt to in nitpick inconsistencies in their testimony. Yes, Marshall remembered the color of Russ's car wrong. Yes, he said Russ left after him until he recalled following Russ's taillights, and none of these blips was related to the real issue. Russ Faria had an unshakable alibi because he was there with them all night. November 6, 2015 was the final day of trial two. Joel Schwartz asked Judge Ulmerich to admit Pam Hupp's banking information into evidence. It would reveal her motive for murder, her efforts to cover up her true intentions, her ongoing deception. This also proved what Joel contended, that Sergeant Ryan McCarrick had pressured Pam to set up the trust before the trial to make the prosecution look better and improve Pam's credibility. Assistant Prosecutor George Grundy's response was essentially, so what? Bank records of a non-witness were irrelevant. The judge admitted the evidence along with a deed listing Russ and Elizabeth Faria as co-owners of the home at 130 Sumac Drive, Troy, Missouri. And this is highly significant because in the mystery letter that Betsy supposedly wrote, she complained about Russ saying that she was just a guest in his house. Well, incorrect. Both Russ and Betsy owned their home, and Betsy would certainly know this. So who wrote this false information in the note? Someone who didn't know they both owned the house? Pam Hupp had been subpoenaed by both prosecution and defense, but was not called as a witness, and she was pissed. Schwartz determined that the maddening lies, twisting stories, and a disturbed woman on the stand was not to the benefit of the defense. Finding out she wouldn't be testifying, Pam texted defense attorney Nate Swanson, quote, what's the matter? Schwartz loses balls, end quote. Still, Pam Hump must have known that she was either going to be painted as a valued witness to a murderous plot by Russ Faria or the cold calculating killer responsible for the death of her best friend for money. Aske did not repeat the insane murder conspiracy closing of trial one. Selling such an outlandish theory to Judge Ulmer probably wasn't a good look. Instead, she emphasized the mystery letter to Pam Hupp If something happened to me, please show this to the police. As if it had been proven, Betsy wrote this, which was in serious question after the home ownership faux pas, all the issues with the computer and the programming. Askey said there was no blood or DNA from anyone except Betsy and Russ at the scene. His DNA was found on his slippers, a common occurrence when one wears their own slippers. Russ must have known Betsy was changing the beneficiary on the state farm policy because it was the only one he called about getting money, not the mutual of Omaha. Askey said on the 911 call, Russ cried and stalled the dispatcher when she was asking questions he didn't like but was calm and collected when he wanted to talk. Russ claimed he and Betsy had rekindled their marriage while he was having an affair. Clearly, he was guilty. Joel closed, saying the state hadn't based its case on evidence, just merely unadulterated speculation. His evidence? Videos, store receipts, cell phone records, testimony of the four game night players, all proving Russ was nowhere near his home when Betsy was killed. First responder testimony said she had been dead for two to three hours, which was between 7 and 8 p.m. when Russ was at the Corbin house. The evolving lies and manipulation of Pam Hupp, coupled with the deceptive conduct of the police, that excused and willingly accepted Pam's word while they encouraged and coached Pam Hupp. Detective Haney, creating the story of Pam seeing Russ in the car outside of his home, one Pam repeated pup spent the day of the murder trying to control Betsy's movements to get her into her home alone while she knew Russ was out of the house. Pam ignored Betsy's clear instructions not to come to the hospital, and all while Pam testified that she wasn't the best driver at night and was terrible at directions, but insisted on driving Betsy home when she already had a ride. Pam's seven twenty seven p m phone call was from Betsy's cell phone tower. The same as the 7.04 p.m. call, proving her statements on location were false. Betsy failed to answer important calls from her daughter, Leah, that came in between 7.21 and 7.30 p.m. Something made Betsy break that promise to take Leah's calls, or someone. Now, who could have done that? Schwartz reviewed the water droplet testimony. Wouldn't there be a lot more evidence if Russ had taken a shower? More water? wet towels, but there was none, no blood in the sinks or drains. But it would be impossible for Betsy's killer not to be bloody, and Russ had no blood on him. But a bloody slipper with a fabric pattern that matched that on the switch plate. Blue Star Luminol test showed no bloody clean-up evidence, with Mike Merkel clearly perjuring himself. Sergeant Ryan McCarrick admitted coaching Pam to set up the trust fund, but the police hadn't even investigated Pam Hub, the last person seen with a living Betsy. After rebuttals, Missouri versus Russ Faria 2.0 ended. Couldn't get more outrageous? Well, of course it can. And this is when Prosecutor Leah Askey offered Russ a plea bargain. Now you have to consider it. If Russ pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter for time served, it would be tough to refuse even if they knew he hadn't killed Betsy. He'd be out and he'd be a free man. It would be over. But that's not what Leah Askey offered. Utterly delusional. Askey's plea deal offer was that if Russ would plead guilty to second degree murder, she would recommend a sentence of soft life. That is, Russ would be eligible for parole after two decades, maybe more in prison. Soda shot out my nose reading this part. Okay, she is utterly deranged. Russ's response was, quote, she could give me a parking ticket and I'd tell her to stick it up her ass, end quote. Judge Stephen Omer reconvened court at 3.45 p.m., much sooner than anyone expected the kindly man spoke about the brutal murder and the sorrow for the family, having to witness such horror. Judge Ulmer then explained that a defendant is presumed innocent, and the state has a burden to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. He recapped the general theories. Russ killed Betsy in a fit of passion, versus Pam Hupp killed Betsy and set up Russ to take the fall. And then he made this observation, quote, the investigation into the facts and theories of the case by law enforcement is rather disturbing and, frankly, raises more questions than answers. Inconsistencies and or lies do not equate murder where the hard facts do not support the conclusion, but rather speculation, innuendo, and supposition only. Reasonable doubt is a doubt based on reason and common sense. After careful, an impartial consideration of the evidence. Consequently, as to count one, murder in the first degree, as everyone sucks in their breath, the court finds Russell Scott Faria not guilty. End quote. Russ's legs went weak and he feared he would collapse as Nate Swanson's arms went around him holding him up. A smiling Schwartz looked into Russ's face, quote, it's over. End quote. The cries of joy from the family welled up, and Russ went to hug his mother, then father, and sister, and cousin. Betsy's family left quickly without speaking. Leah Askey made some moronic statement. All Russ told the media was he felt, quote, relief, glad it's finally over, end quote. Schwartz almost couldn't put into words the feeling that overwhelmed him, saying, quote, I still have hope for justice for Betsy and her family. End quote, as her murder was now officially unsolved. On the way to a restaurant to celebrate, Joel called Richard Callahan, U.S. Attorney for the St. Louis District in eastern Missouri, and asked for a comprehensive review of all aspects of the Faria case, including the mysterious death of Shirley Newman, Pam Hupp's mother. Callahan agreed that the facts warranted some conversation was certainly appropriate with the judge the Missouri Attorney General's Office, and local prosecutor. Schwartz was concerned that if Pam Hupp wasn't stopped, quote, someone else is going to die, end quote. And that concludes episode 42, The Bell Cannot Be Unrung, on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Bessie Faria murder case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Schwartz. Read the book. I hope you are as riveted to the story as I am, Murder Bookies. The conclusion and second cast, episode 43, Karma is a Bitch, will not disappoint. I've read the other Betsy Faria book, Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured by Rebecca Pittman, is part of my research. So subscribe and do not miss this conclusion with important updates. There's a reason that this coming episode refers to karma. Honestly, I have never heard of anything quite like what's coming. And my next book is American Predator by journalist Maureen Callahan. I do enjoy serial killer stories. I know there's something wrong with me. For 14 years, Israel Keyes was one of the most ambitious and terrifying serial killers in modern history who went unnoticed, flying literally under the radar, described by a prosecutor as a force of pure evil keys was a predator who struck all over the united states where he buried kill kits cash weapons body disposal tools in remote locations across the country terrifyingly he abducts his victims in broad daylight kills and disposes of them in mere hours and then he would return home to alaska resuming life as a quiet reliable construction worker devoted to his only daughter chilling, terrifying story. Thank you for listening. Please leave us five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. The link is on my blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material, snack and drink information, and show notes for Bone Deep, Untangling the Twisted True Story of the Tragic Betsy Faria Murder Case by Charles Bodwick and Joel Schwartz is found on my blog, too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Husina, and lyrics by Otto Harbach.